Welcome to the Product Hive Podcast. My name is Dave Crow. On this episode, we're bringing you the presentation from our October UX event, where you'll hear from Liz Brown, who's a senior experience designer at Ancestry. In this talk, she covers the field of service design. If that's a new term for you, then you're in good company. Liz covers a brief history of service design, an explanation of what it is, and how it compares to UX design. She also shares a few tangible examples of how service design can benefit products that are just starting up and also corporations at large scale. A big thanks to Ancestry for hosting this event at their headquarters in Lehigh and for giving away a bunch of their DNA kits. As always, be sure to join our community on Slack. You'll find lots of great conversation there about all things product related. You can get an invite to our Slack group and find out more information about Product Hive at ProductHive.org. So now, let's hear Liz Brown's talk on service design, what it is, and how it can benefit your product. Good morning, everybody. How are you guys all today? I know it's early, as Daniel and Dave both mentioned, so you're probably sick of us telling you how early you're here. Um, thank you for coming out to listen to this presentation today. Um, thank you to Product Hive for having me talk about service design this morning. Uh, who is ready to hear about service design? Awesome, awesome. So a little bit about my background with service design and in general, um, I've been with Ancestry for eight months now. I moved here from Dallas, Texas, where I was working at Capital One as an experience designer and a design strategist. And when I started, uh, when I knew I was gonna be moving here, I was introduced to the Product Hive community, actually. And that's how I started looking for jobs and eventually ended up at Ancestry. And so now it's all come full circle. Um, Prior to Capital One, I was at a couple advertising agencies in Dallas and then a branding agency as well. So throughout my career, I've made my way actually starting in visual design, into UX design, into service design, and into design strategy. And today I wanted to talk about service design with you because I have a real passion for systems thinking and service design, but I'm not here to tell you that service design is the end all, be all, only design discipline that matters. Um, in no way, shape, or form is that true, and that's not what I am hoping to convince you of today. But instead, I just wanted to offer up some tools and trips, tips and show you how I've used service design in my practice, and hopefully it offers something beneficial to you. And um, if you're interested, I can give you more information at the end. Uh, I've got a lot to go through today, so I'm gonna go through it kind of high level and pretty quickly, but I hope it will stir a lot of good conversation at the end that we can get to. So starting out, um, I wanted to go over a quick history of service design. Um, service design is not new, right? People have been designing services for years. They just have not included designers in the process, right? And that's how we end up with some services that aren't ideal. I'm sure you've all experienced them in your own day today. Um, a little bit more of an academic timeline. In 1982, a man named G. Lynn Shostak was credited um, for kind of coming up with the idea of service design and the idea of service blueprinting. And he really um, brought attention to the idea because he saw a need for the marketing piece of his business to integrate better with his day-to-day -day operations and for those to be more cohesive. Um, in 1984, his first service blueprint was published in the Harvard Business Review. And again, the blueprint may not have been new. This was the first time it got published and it was actually 
a blueprint of a shoe shine station and how that should work and when you should get your shoe polish and when you should talk to the customer and every piece of the service in between. Um, in 1991, service design was first introduced as a discipline at a school in the UK, and then that is also the same year that IDEO was founded. So I'm sure many of you are familiar with IDEO. It's a bit more of a design thinking um, organization, but a lot of the frameworks and the methods that they teach parallel really nicely with service design. And then in 2001, uh, the first actual service design consultancy was established in the UK. It's called LiveWork. Um, it is still around today. It's an amazing resource. I encourage you to visit their website. And then that was also the year Adaptive Path was founded. So Adaptive Path was founded as more of a UX organization. Um, they made their way into the service design world. And I mention them here because a lot of my formal training was through Adaptive Path. And so I've included resources today from the entire service design community, but a lot of what I'm sharing with you was shaped by Adaptive Path. 2004, the Service Design Network was founded by the same people that introduced it as a formal discipline. It is still around today and it's an amazing global organization. Um, they actually just wrapped up the, the Global Service Design Conference last week. It was in Dublin. Um, it's a really amazing conference where they get people from all around the world to talk about service design. And then lastly, 2011 was the first service design jam. And this is a global service design hackathon. It's aimed at creating social impact and you can participate from anywhere in the, um, in the world and you just get a team together in your city. So if anyone's interested in putting a team together for Salt Lake this year, let me know. Um, I'm hoping to get that started. Uh, it'll be in 2019. So globally, service design is heavily, um, has come from Europe. This is a map of everywhere that it's established as a higher level education program. And then similarly, this is where we have all kinds of, um, or any established service design consultancy. So in both cases, you can see, again, heavily in Europe, it's making its way into the US and so hopefully over the next few years we'll see more people talking about service design and using it in their business organizations. So what is service design? Um, there's a lot of really academic, technical definitions, a lot of definitions I've seen kind of biased towards the customer experience piece of service design, a lot of them biased towards the operational piece of service design. And today, I tried to put together my own definition, and I don't say that to be arrogant. Um, I was really have been kind of struggling with this concept of how you can concisely define service design. And uh, I put together a definition that will hopefully, you know, kind of be reiterated throughout the rest of my presentation. Um, so I'm going to read this to you. Bear with me. Uh, service design is a cross-discipline practice that aims to innovate or improve a service by using design methods to orchestrate touch points in order to provide a usable and desirable customer experience while also reducing inefficiencies in an organization and showing consideration to those that provide the service. Simple, right? Easy, concise, quick to the point. You know exactly what I'm trying to say, right? Um, and so as I was piecing this together, I tried to break down the different components of service design. So more closely, it is a cross-discipline practice. Service design cannot happen in a vacuum. It shouldn't happen in a vacuum. It's not this magic thing where a service designer goes into a room and solves all the world problems and comes out. It is cross-discipline. You need data analysts, you need legal, you need product managers, you need UX designers, you need graphic designers, um, user researchers, any discipline that you can think of need to participate in service design in order to make it effective in your organization. Um, basically, you can use it to innovate or improve a service. So that's just saying that you can create a service from scratch, you can improve a service that already exists. 
It's used to orchestrate uh, touch points in the service, so I'll dive into this more in just a second. Um, and then the real key here is that service design bridges the customer experience with the experience of those that are providing the service. So you have to really consider the experience that your staff is having while they are providing the service to their customers. So some of the principles of service design, um, it is human-centered. So I think this goes without saying, most design disciplines are human-centered. Um, I think that service design takes this a step further. Uh, a lot of user-centered practices that I've seen before kind of stop at the idea of usability or accessibility. And service design places a real emphasis on ethnographic research and creating a real emotional experience for your customers when it's warranted, right? And so they kind of take that idea a little bit further and push it from usability into the space of empathy. Um, it's co-creative, so again, this kind of goes without saying, but the real key in service design is that you need to create these, use these tools and frameworks to create with your end user, your customer, but you also have to create with your organization and the staff that is behind the scenes of your service. If you don't create with both sides of the equation, um, it's not gonna be effective. And orchestrated, this is the word that I mentioned a second ago. This is a really, um, really, really key word. And so I've seen several different resources kind of talk about the same concept and they've used the words coordinated or aligned. And coordinated and aligned just makes, means that things are happening in tandem, right? They're happening together um, in harmony. Orchestrated, if you look at the definition of the word, it talks about what the outcome is and what is the desired outcome of what it is you're trying to do. And then you work backwards and you arrange the pieces of your service in order to achieve that outcome. So orchestration is a really important word here. Um, it's holistic, again, kind of goes without saying, but you have to look at every single piece of the system that you're looking at to design in, and you have to consider every piece, the front end and the back end. Um, whoops, and then it is evidencing. So this is, again, another word that was really specifically chosen. Um, a couple people use the word tangible here, but I chose the word evidencing, and this is from um, a book called This is Service Design Thinking. Um, it's evidencing because services are intangible, right? You can't touch them or feel them. They're intangible, but they have tangible pieces to them. So for example, if I go get my car washed, I can show you that I got a car wash, but I can't give you the car wash, right? So there's evidence that you experienced a service. Um, mostly and all in all, service design is a toolbox. So again, like any discipline, it is a set of tools and frameworks. Um, a lot of people kind of roll their eyes when they start hearing things like documents or process or frameworks. And I actually read an article the other day that was written by a service designer and he was kind of bashing service design for being too heavily focused on tools and it was um, more about the frameworks and less about the application of the design work. And I would argue that the tools are really necessary because service design happens in these really complex systems, right? In these complex worlds and realities. And these tools help you visualize those complexities and look at what you're working on, how different pieces of the system are influencing each other. But just like any design discipline, it's up to the designer, it's up to the expert, to those that are using the tools to understand when is the right time to use certain tools. So you can largely follow a design process that starts with discovery and you know, moves into ideation and then into a phase of application. And if you're creating a new service, you probably will follow a process that looks like that. But you can also jump into any existing service and pick a particular tool and use it to start improving that service. 
Um, so some of the tools that are heavily used are the service blueprint, ethnographic research, vision stories, evolution maps, storytelling, service storming, and so many others, right? So we've got a lot. Um, this is just kind of a handful of ones that are really popular and used. I am going to dig into a couple of these a little bit more, um, but I just wanted to show the depth and breadth. It's just a set of tools that you can use to um, work in diff different problems. Um, next, I want to talk about a little bit how UX compares to service design, right? What is the difference? And I think there's a lot of overlaps, there's a lot of parallels, and uh, this is a huge generalization, so I will admit that right off the bat. But UX is largely a user interaction with one touch point. And more often than not, that's a, or more often than not, that's a digital touch point. And you might argue that it is a set of digital touch points or multiple touch points. So it might be multiple pages within one web application, but at the end of the day, it's largely one touch point that your user is interacting with. Service design is looking at the entire ecosystem and all of the touch points within that ecosystem, both physical and digital, and understanding how they work together. In the context of time, user experience compares to service design, the timeline when it's usually applied is a little bit different. So UX design is usually applied six months to a year from the time that you create it, right? That is when it is effective, and that is when your, your designs are present, and then you go through a cycle of iteration, right, and you start to change them. Service design usually looks about three years out. So you might be doing work at the zero year, year mark, but you're actually applying that work, and you're, you're looking at what are we creating three years out, and that's when your design and your work actually takes place. And then to put this you know, in full context, if you're familiar with foresight work and looking at different possible futures, that usually is about three to five or more years out. So service design sits somewhere in the middle of UX and foresight work. So now that we've talked in theories and high levels, I wanted to put this in a little bit more of a tangible example. So how many of you have been to the DMV, right? Best service experience ever. Can't wait to go back, right? It's awesome. Um, We've all been to the DMV, unfortunately, for us. Um, so when you're looking at what user experience looks like at a DMV, for example, it might look something like this. You have a digital touch point. A couple different DMVs are doing this now where you can log in online ahead of time and make an appointment at the DMV so you don't sit there for half of your day, right? You still sit there for quite a while if anyone's ever used this feature, but it helps a little bit. So this is an example of one digital touch point that is a user experience that you need to create. Similarly, another touch point might be a physical touch point. It might be the paperwork that you have to do when you get to the DMV. That is a single user experience that you can design with intent. Um, I hope that there were not designers involved in designing these touch points, but there's an opportunity to, right? Um, and then on the flip side, service design at the DMV looks something like this. It is all of it. It is everything. So you might have support staff that's helping you um, you know, figure out where to go when you get to the DMV. And then you might have paperwork that you have to fill out. And then you jump into the waiting area and you sit there for four hours wondering what anyone is doing at the DMV. And then you watch the queue line for that four hours and you try and figure out when your number is going to be called. And once your number is called, you check the wayfinding to figure out which station you need to go to. And then after you go to that station, you have to get your vision test. And we can't forget about the digital touch point that actually happened at your house before you got to the DMV, because that needs to feed into the queue where everybody else that is arriving at the DMV in person is also feeding into the queue. 
So this is service design. It is orchestrating all of these touch points at once. And the thing that I wanted to point out here is you can use service design to create very different experiences with the same set of touch points. So at the DMV, for example, if you guys have been to DMVs in different states, some DMVs you arrive, you wait in line, and then you get assigned to one station. And you go talk to a person, and you talk to that person, you do your paperwork, and then at that same station you do your vision test, and they print out your, they take your picture, and then they print out your temporary or your real license, right? And it's one and done, all with one person. At other DMVs, using the same exact touch points, they've created an experience where you walk in, you maybe get a number, you fill out some initial paperwork, you wait, and then you go to one person and you talk to them. And then when you're done talking to them, you go to a different station and you get your vision tested. And then you go to another station and you get your picture taken. And then you go to another station and you get your license printed out, whether it's temporary or real, whatever. So those are two very different experiences using the exact same touch points in a system, right? And that's where service design happens. You can create very different experiences um, with the intent. You have to decide what experience you want your customers to have. So uh, to diagram this out a little bit, service design has visible and invisible pieces. So you have your customer, of course. This is the journey that they go on throughout your service experience. You need staff, of course, to make this experience happen for your customers. And you need systems and processes in place in the back end to support your staff and to support your customers. Um, and then, of course, your customers have different touch points along the way of their journey. Um, but this is where it gets a little bit tricky, and this is a really big key concept of service design. Um, actually, someone was just asking me about this right before this talk. Um, is service design talking about designing the customer experience, or is it actually talking about the design of the services behind the scenes, right? The APIs and all the technology? And the answer is both. So we have this concept called the line of visibility. And the line of visibility separates what is often referred to as the front stage from the backstage. And your staff is a really key component in your service ecosystem because it can either be behind the scenes or it can be in front of the scenes. And so taking an example of, um, I'll use Amazon for example. A behind the scenes staff might be someone that works in the fulfillment center. As a customer, if I order something from Amazon, someone in their warehouse has to go figure out what product I ordered, find the product in the warehouse, and get it ready for the next stage of the process. That is behind the scenes. It's not something as a customer that I see. It's not something that I interact with. I only know it's there because I know about Amazon, but you know, right, to the customer, they don't, they don't experience that happening. Um, on the flip side, if I have an issue with my order and I need to call into Amazon and say, blah, blah, blah happened, I talked to a customer service representative. And that is an interaction that I have. I have a conversation with a member of their staff. That is a front stage interaction. That is someone, something that I see. Um, also, there's a couple different touch points that don't need staff involved at all, right? So you might have automated systems on the back end that are creating these experiences for your customers. So for example, if a customer comes to your website and they register on your website, you probably are gonna send them a confirmation email that says thanks for registering. You don't have staff sitting there watching the registrations coming in and saying, okay, send email. It's an automated system and automatically knows when to send it. So within this realm, again, looking at UX and service design, UX design, is within the customer and their interactions, right? It's designing an experience that they have with those various touch points. 
It's also designing the experience that the staff has with the systems that you have in place and also with their customers. So this is where experience design happens and service design is coordinating all of that. Um, so kind of that kind of covered like the um, just kind of what service design is and how it works but I wanted to talk a little bit about why it's important. Um, so services are not services, right? Our customers don't talk about services. They don't say, oh, I had a great service at the car wash the other day. No, they come home and they tell their friends and family about the experience that they had with your company or with your brand or your product or service. And so you come home and you say, I had an awesome experience at the car wash. They greeted me by name, they took my car, they gave me a free tire shine, and then they handed me a cold drink as I like drove off and was on my way. It was such a wonderful experience. Um, and so this is such an important aspect of service design and this is why we use it. It's because we can envision the experience we want our customers have and we can organize the pieces of the system in order to create that experience. Uh, so I think a really powerful way to show the need or the benefit of things is to show what happens when we don't have them, right? So I wanted to talk about a couple service breakdowns. This is a very first world problem. I'm just gonna caveat that right off the bat. Um, I am a coffee drinker, and I uh, really enjoy Starbucks, has a great feature on their app where you can order your coffee ahead of time, and it is ready to go, you walk in the door, and you get your coffee. And I have, do this a couple times a week, I've got it down to a science, there's a Starbucks right by my house, and I know exactly what time I need to order my coffee, so that it is at the perfect drinking temperature when I walk in and pick up my coffee. Not too hot, not too cold. And Starbucks makes it really easy, because all I have to do is press this little plus sign on their app. This is my order history. And all I do is press this little plus sign and it updates my cart and then I click on the cart button and I use my Touch ID to pay for my coffee and I get an order confirmation. So the other day I did this as I've done a hundred times, probably more than I'd like to admit, and I drove to Starbucks that's right by my house and as I got to Starbucks I noticed the parking lot was under construction and I thought that's kind of weird. It's a weird parking lot anyway so I parked around the corner and as I was walking up, I noticed that the store next to Starbucks was closed down. Again, I didn't think much of it. It was like an old jewelry store, pawn shop or something. And I was like, okay, whatever. And as I got to the Starbucks, the entire Starbucks was gone. There was not even a sign that a Starbucks ever existed there. There was not even an imprint of an old logo. There was no flooring in the building. It was taken down to the studs. And I don't know when they did this. I drive by it every single day, and I don't order coffee every single day, but often enough that I think I would have noticed this, right? So I thought, that's so odd. And I kind of laughed in my head. I didn't think much of it. Like, I was disappointed I wasn't going to get my coffee, and I lost, like, what, three bucks maybe? But I kind of laughed, and I thought, that's really funny that they shut this place down in such a hurry, apparently, that nobody thought to turn off the mobile ordering for this location. Well, I was wrong. So I got back to my car and I looked again at my app and I noticed this one little word down here, state. It is at 21st and state. That is not the Starbucks I usually go to. I usually go to a Starbucks that is at 21st Street, so I didn't even notice that this changed on me and they automatically updated the location to a new Starbucks and they didn't tell me. So I know that this address stays the same every single day. I could go to California, I could go to New York, I could go anywhere in the world, and that address never updates unless I go in and I choose to update it away from my default. So as a customer that uses this app every single day, I know I don't need to interact with that. And sure, I read 
probably looked at this, right, that there was a difference, but I never noticed. And so what a great opportunity for Starbucks to take a moment of what was now frustration for me. They could have created a delightful experience out of it. They know my order history. They know my location. They know I order from there almost every single day. And they could have said, hey, Liz, sorry, but your favorite location closed down. Do you mind driving a little bit further today? And I probably would have said yes, and it would have been fine. And I would have had my expectations at the right level. And instead, I was in a moment of frustration, and I had to drive out of my way and you know, go to work, it was probably later than I wanted to be, whatever. Again, I admit, first world problem completely, not a big deal in the scheme of things, but it was an awesome opportunity that a little bit of service design love could have really improved this experience. So another example, this one's a little bit less of a first world problem. Um, this is actually a story that I heard from a coworker I used to work with. This was at a previous company he was at. I won't name the company, you can probably guess what it is. Um, it is an insurance company that is also a bank company. Many of you in here might be customers of theirs. And they had a customer that called in and he had just been hit on the freeway by a cement truck. He was rear-ended on his way to work by a cement truck. Can you imagine what that experience is like? Like, I can't even imagine. Thank goodness he was okay, he was fine. So he pulled over, he called his insurance company, um, you know, the agent talked them through what he needed to do, the information he needed to get, uh, made sure he was okay, all of that, and everything was good. And then the customer service agent chose this time to cross-sell him a credit card. Awesome, right? Isn't that just fantastic experience? So, personally, I probably have a little bit of an irrational sense of um, annoyance when people try to sell me things, especially when it's at a really inopportune time. I can't even begin to think like what I would have done in the situation, right? You've just been hit by a cement truck and someone's trying to get you to buy a credit card. Um, and the customer service agent wasn't doing anything wrong, right? They had a script that said, okay, now sell this person a credit card. It didn't say if your customer is in an emotionally appropriate state, sell them a credit card. It just said, sell them a credit card and that they did. So, um, and I'll come back to that in just a second, but there's, a, there's benefits depending of service design depending on which scenarios you're in. So right, that kind of, as I was mentioning in the definition, there's new services that can be created from scratch and there's also existing services that may need to be improved. And depending on which scenario you're in, there's different um, tools that you can use for each of those. Uh, when you're working with a new service, um, it goes without saying that these tools offer you a way to understand the market and to understand your customer and to understand what your target customer is and to start to define a vision of where you want your service to go and what you want it to be. And in that process of defining the vision, um, you create a lot of stakeholder alignment. So of course, everybody needs to be on board. Um, and then you need to, you can uh, start to define what that offering is and then you create an execution plan um, to get to that future state. And then of course, you um, can use these tools to create an organizational plan and develop a business model to support the service that you want to offer. Um, within a new experience, uh, again, it goes without saying that you can use service design tools to improve your customer experience, to improve your staff experience. Um, a big opportunity for service design with existing services is to reduce inefficiencies. And so you can use this. There's a lot of um, backstage processes that happen. For example, if you have staff that have very manual tasks, there may be a technology that you can leverage to automate those and you're in turn reducing your costs. 
Um, and then this is the best one, or my favorite one, is you can use service design to change metrics to drive certain behavior. So in the example of the cement truck, that customer service agent was incentivized to sell credit cards, right? And that, in turn, created a really poor experience for their customer. Um, another example of that was um, there was a company that I was working with, and we were looking at their services, and we were trying to get qualitative data um, to understand why our, the customers were calling in for certain reasons. So the customer service agents had digital tools to kind of categorize the phone calls, and so we had a lot of quantitative da data of how many customers were calling in in certain categories, but we couldn't get down to the why, and we really needed that. Um, their phone system was not hooked up in a way that we could like go back and look at very specific calls that fell into those buckets. It was kind of like a lottery, lottery system when you listen to past calls. Um, you might get to listen to the call you wanted to, you might not. Uh, and so within the digital tool that those agents had, there was a section for notes. Um, and the agents were trained that they could use that space to add any additional details or color information about the call that the customer had, um, you know, the interaction that happened. Well, no, no one used the notes. And we really needed them to use the notes. And we couldn't figure out why they weren't using the notes section. And we figured out later that any information that they put in that note section could be used against them, right? They could be reprimanded if they mishandled something. So they were incentivized to not use the tools that we needed them to use. So there again, this is a way that certain pieces of the system that you design influence other pieces, right? And in turn, um, affect the end customer experience. Um, and then lastly, within an existing service, you can use service design to, oper uh, to find opportunities to introduce new touch points or new um, systems to your service. Um, and as I was talking with Dave before we had, bef when we we're talking about what would be relevant information to share with all of you, we were talking about how service design applies in a startup and in a corporation. So, right, it's the same thing. So startup is really kind of a new service. You're, you're starting it from the ground up. And um, within larger corporations, you already have ser services in place, but there's ways you can jump in and improve them. And I'll share some examples in just a second. So I wanted to talk about a couple companies. You know, that helps like draw an analogy pretty quickly. Uh, within the new service space, Spotify is a great example, right? They came in with a completely new business model of how to deliver music to customers. I know they weren't the first ones, but they are probably the most well-known right now. And they introduced music streaming to the world. Um, Uber was another one. They came in and they changed the business model for the taxi industry, right? And I don't know how many of you are familiar with Uber. Um, this is kind of interesting because I don't know if they were intentionally marketed this way when they started or if it was just social marketing, but that's something to consider as you're designing your products as well. Um, Uber, in Dallas anyways, was introduced as this kind of elite experience, right? It was in a black car. At the time, they were actually unmarked cars, which they changed due to safety concerns, which was probably a great idea. Um, it was in an unmarked car because at the time, uh, with taxis, it was really hard to hail a taxi, right? Because anyone can walk up and take your taxi that you're about to get. So part of the idea behind Uber was not only was this really elite, special experience, but it was an unmarked car, so no one could walk up and take your ride away from you. What I love about this example is that, um, personally, I'm a fan of Lyft over Uber. And so this is not selfishly, but it was very interesting to me that Lyft came in and actually 
disrupted the disruptor, right? And Lyft said, we don't care about your black car fancy experience. We're going to come in. We're going to open up the market to any driver. So you don't have to have a black car. You don't have to have a car of a certain make or model. They probably had a few safety constraints on it, I would hope. Um, and that way, we're actually opening up the market to a lot more drivers, and we're reducing the cost for our customers. So again, same touch points, same general idea, but the business model design was so different. It created very different experiences for the customer. Um, IKEA is another one. They have created a business model where their service experience is, it's all self-service, right? And they've reduced the overhead costs of having to stuff their stores or, you know, stuff them as much as a Walmart or a Home Depot or whatever. Um, Netflix was one that disrupted the movie industry um, by offering a subscription model and allowing you to get DVDs mailed to your house. Hotwire disrupted the hotel industry. Carvana disrupted the car buying industry. I don't know if anyone's familiar with Carvana or Vroom, but you can buy and sell your car completely online. Takes all the pain of a dealership out of the equation. Um, and then in existing services, we see uh, services where companies have pivoted, right, or expanded their service offering using service design and business model design. So iTunes was an example of one that pivoted, right? They changed to Apple Music in order to keep up and stay relevant and stay competitive in the market. Um, Starbucks was one that I mentioned earlier. They didn't change drastically, but they broadened their service offering. And one of the features that was great that they introduced was um, ordering ahead through your mobile app. CarMax was one that recognized that one of the biggest pain points in the car buying industry is the negotiation process with the dealers. And they, again, brought in their service offering to include no-hassle pricing, which was amazing. Um, PayPal was one, again, they didn't make drastic changes, they just brought in their service offering to stay relevant by introducing peer-to-peer -peer payments and contactless payment hardware. Kroger offered uh, groceries that you could order ahead and drive up and someone would take them out to your car and there's a couple other people that are doing this as well. And then Netflix was one, I love this because it's in both categories, you know, they started mailing DVDs to your house and then they pivoted again and um, changed to streaming content. And now they're even experiment, not experimenting, they do create their own content, right? And it's pretty awesome too. So they've continually changed the services that they offer. Really, really quickly, I wanted to run through one tool that I think all of you can use right now. Today, you can go back to your products or services and try and use this for yourself. It is a service blueprint. Um, it is one of the most fundamental tools of service design. Um, and it is hugely beneficial, as I mentioned, just the act of getting your team together and trying to create one is probably the most value that it has to offer. So I won't go through all of these points. I think I've mentioned most of them. Um, but I will call out that um, it just it's a really great way to visualize how all these different components are working together. Um, and uh, I, think, I think I've mentioned everything else here so far. So the first element that you have is your customer actions. So that is the top row of a service blueprint. Um, and then after that, you have your touch points. Um, a touch point can be anything from a digital touch point. It can be a physical touch point. It could be a conversation. Um, it could be a, a car. I mean, it could be literally anything. So a touch point is not just a tangible thing that we've been talking about, um, or you know, kind of in the traditional sense of the word. It can be any piece. Um, and it's really important when you're documenting your touch points that you give them specific names. So 
you might have 17 emails that you send out to your customers at different places in the experience. So as you're documenting those, uh, giving it a name, the welcome email, the uh, registration email, the account setup email, whatever it is, giving those touch points names as you're mapping them out is really useful uh, to talk about later. As I mentioned earlier, you have staff in the front stage as well as the backstage. Um, and I kind of covered the idea there earlier, so I won't belabor that point. And then in the back, you have uh, systems and processes. Um, the systems and processes, again, you can get as high level or as granular as you want. If you want to call out specific algorithms or APIs in the back, you can. If you want to talk about databases, you can. Or if you want to just lump it up into automated service, blah, 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 um, that's great. You can do that as well. Um, this entire document is very linear, so it happens over the course of time as you move from the left to the right. Uh, the two challenges, as I mentioned, I encourage you all to try this tool for yourself. I will warn you that there's two challenges with service design that are, or service blueprinting that are a little uncomfortable when you first start trying it. Um, but just the more you practice, the easier it becomes. The first is that blueprinting is a very linear framework, right? So it, it is very linear. If your service or your product offering has many different tangents to it and different paths that your customers can take, it's a little bit more difficult. Um, to map that out. There are ways to do it, and with any service design tool or any design tool, um, there's many people in the academic world that probably encourage you to follow a very strict process, and you can't break this framework, and you have to use it exactly as we told you to use it. Um, I am on the other side, and I believe that you should use tools, and you should adapt them, and you should change them however best suits you and your organization's needs. So if you need to add things or tweak things in these frameworks, I encourage you to do that. Um, with that being said, if your service has a lot of different paths and a lot of different edge cases, it might be hard to blueprint, but there are ways to visualize a couple different multiple paths in here. Um, and one really great rule you can use is the 80-20 rule. So I generally look at what are 80% of our customers doing and go ahead and just try to mount that as a first pass. The second challenge that's a little bit difficult is the level of Zoom. So a customer action um, could be uh, registering on Ancestry, right? That could be a customer action. Or you could get really, really granular and say that a customer action is entering their birth date into the registration form on Ancestry, right? So those are two very different levels of Zoom, and depending on what window of time you're trying to cover in your blueprint, you need to decide which level of Zoom is appropriate for your team. And it can work for all different levels of Zoom. The only thing I encourage you to do is just stay at the same level of Zoom throughout the experience, and that's where it gets a little bit tricky, but as long as you practice it and you just stay on the same page as your team, it's relatively easy. Um, this is from the Nielsen Norman Group. This is just one example of what a service blueprint might look like when it's all finally done. I usually go through with teams and we use post-it notes the first time because it's really quick to iterate and change things. And then you can put it into Excel and then you can you know, map it on and create this nice, beautiful visual product um, at the very end. Uh, you can also Google service blueprinting and there's like tons of other examples of how other people have used it for themselves. Um, and then lastly, um, Service Blueprint is really awesome because when you go through the act of creating a current state blueprint and then a future state blueprint, um, this is where the, a lot of the value comes out too, is you have to say, okay, how are we going to get from the current state to the future state, right? And I mentioned that this is what we're currently working on here at Ancestry, um, is the in-between, the delta of the two experiences becomes your evolution map, right? And so you start to chunk out all the work that you need to do to get from here to there and mapping it out to a timeline. 
Um, that is it. I just wanted to leave you with these resources really quick. Um, these slides will be posted later too, so don't feel like you have to copy this all down. But just really quickly, I wanted to mention the book, This is Service Design Thinking. That was published in 2011, and it was written by two very well-known people in the service design world. It was intended to be a textbook of sorts, so if you want to learn the real fundamentals and the academics behind service design, this is, but it's easy to read at the same time. It's not too hard to understand. It's a great resource. They um, also just came out with This is Service Design Doing. I encourage you to read Thinking First, although Doing is a great resource as well. Um, the book that I really wanted to highlight here is Orchestrating Experiences. This book is so amazing. I cannot sell it enough. Um, this was a really, really unique book in the industry because these two authors chose to not use the term user experience or service design in the entire book which is amazing. And I think that that parallels this idea that these two disciplines are, you know, the line between them is becoming a little more blurred. And, and they should be again, right? They're all just tools that we can use at our disposal and you need to know when to use the right tools. Um, Orchestrating Experiences was an amazing book. It walks you through several different key frameworks. So the blueprint, I think, is one of them. They've got a lot of other ones in there. And they articulate the frameworks in a way that's really easy to understand and to understand the value. They offer a lot of really powerful case studies. But the best part is they give you a step-by-step -step guide at the end of each section of how you can run a workshop for yourself to create some of these frameworks. And it is an awesome resource. Um, um, and then a couple of the websites I wanted to just point out really quick. Um, Service Design Network is of course where um, all of the, the global organization lives. You can find some great resources on there. Um, servicedesignbooks.org if you want to look for other books. This website is so amazing because once you get on there, um, they break out the books into really specific categories like books that are highly rated but not talked about in the community. Like who organizes their books that way, right? Like service designers do, I guess. So I just love, like every time I get on that site, I laugh at the way they categorize things. It's very honest. Um, practical service design, they've got a great website as well as a great Slack community that you can get on. Um, this is a really good resource as well for blueprinting in particular and a couple other frameworks. They've got a little bit of a different way of doing it than how I articulated, so I encourage you to check it out. And then designkit.org um, slash methods is an IDEO website. They, this particular page within the website lists out a ton of tools and things that you can go use. Again, they're mostly design thinking centered. There's a lot of similarities and a lot of parallels with service design. So that is it. Thank you. That was a long presentation, so thanks for sticking with me. Um, do we have any questions? Yes, we'll take a couple minutes for Q and A here. Uh, so if you have any questions, I'm just gonna run to you with a microphone. That way, we pick things up you know, for the video and the podcast. We'll do later. So, questions. All right. What's the career path to service design? Oh, that's an excellent question. What is the career path to service design? Um, there's lots of career paths. So I've seen people in the service design world that made their way from um, product design, from a lot of people from the business world that 
tend to lean more towards the strategy aspect of business have made their way into service design. Um, personally, I mentioned that I started in visual design and then into UX design, and then I was introduced to service design. And I and I, within UX, even I really had an appreciation for information architecture and you know thinking about things in the broader context. And when I learned about service design and understood that, it was a sweet spot for me. Um, but there are many paths into it. Um, if you want like an actionable item that you can take to explore it more, I would encourage you to start checking out just some of the resources. There's a lot of changing chain, excuse me, um, certification programs and classes that you can take. Um, just like any type of UX program or you know any other programs, I encourage you to do some research into that before you invest any money in a program. Um, so there's actual academic ways, but there's a lot of natural ways to bleed into it. That was kind of a non-answer. Did that answer your question? Okay. So you talked about um, creating a learning plan, and I just a little bit unclear as to exactly what that was. So you said that you created hypotheses about I think like what you wanted and what you expected to get out of those, um, is that right? Yes, yeah. So um, the question was um, about how I created uh, the learning plan that I referenced and kind of what it was and how it came about. So a learning plan can take a couple different forms. Um, the piece that I didn't mention that might add some clarity, so I apologize for that, is that usually you start with a leap of faith within your service. So for example, um, you might make an assumption that, like my leap of faith might be, people want flying cars, right? They want to travel by flying car. Um, within that, you start listing out any, and I said hypotheses or assumption because they're kind of one and the same. You can either list it out as a question or as a statement, um, but one assumption might be within that space, this example that I'm giving, um, people will feel safe in flying cars, right? So that's a huge risk. If I test that hypothesis and I see that people don't feel safe in flying cars, then my entire idea is bunk, right? So um, a learning plan is just a series of these buckets with a leap of faith and then individual um, hypotheses under that. Sorry. No, go ahead, yeah, yeah. So how many of those like leap of faith Assumptions you make. Yes, that's accurate. Well, basically, you figure out which ones are valid or invalid. Yeah, depending. And so, um, the second part of that question was just um, how many how many leap of faiths do you have, and how many hypotheses do you have? It depends on your service. Um, generally, the leaps of faith are pretty high level. So for a typical product or service, I would think there could be anywhere from maybe one to three, depending on the space that you're working in. It's really hard to just kind of call out a number. But then within that, you might have 10 hypotheses. You might have 25. But they usually get pretty granular. And I would list the more, the better. And then later, you can maybe synthesize them into buckets if you see some overlap. Yeah, and if you want, reach out to me. I'm on Slack to reach out to me individually. I'd be happy to talk in more detail about it as well. Yeah. Um, I hope this question makes sense. I've worked with a lot of um, companies whose primary users of their product or service is not who they sell to. I jokingly refer to this as B2B2C. Mm -hmm. um, 
in that context, uh, is service design still relevant? Is it only relevant? Uh, is it relevant throughout, or is it only relevant for the B two B side, or? Yeah, absolutely. So that's a really awesome question as well. Um, the question was just if you're working in a product environment that acts more like a B to B to C instead of just a direct B to C, how does service design apply in that world? Um, so uh, it's really, really tricky. It's hard, right? Um, actually, the example that I gave at Capital One was exactly that because. We were acting as a bank, but we were offering services to the dealerships, which was B2B, and then we were offering services to the customer, which is B2C. Um, there's a lot of other tools that I would encourage you to use. Um, an ecosystem map is a really great tool that helps you look at the world that your customer is operating in and then look at the world that the business is operating in and both businesses, and you can start to look at the influences that they have on each other. So I didn't cover any specific tools, but there are frameworks that you can help visualize those complexities because there are a lot of them. Um, when it comes to things like service blueprinting, one option is to put um, your B2B portion as kind of the backstage staff and then your customer is still your customer. There's a lot of fiery conversations in the service design world about the right way to do that, but that's kind of how I've done it in the past is like B2B kind of happens in the backstage and then your customer is always your customer. Um, I don't know if that's helpful, but it is very complex, so good luck. <laughs>